0: Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brand. And this episode, we're discussing SST 246, the Trotsky Ice Pick El Kabong LP. We love Trotsky Ice Pick and all of their offshoots on the show, so really excited to get into this one. It is a great record. Yeah. And we've got a anxiously awaited guest. Yeah, John Tally Jones is on the show. Yeah, it's about time, I would say for John to officially join the Mojack family. We've mentioned John a ton of times over uh, the last few years on the podcast. So really great to have John join the podcast to talk about an album where he joined the band.
1: Yeah. I feel like you brought this up to John in person, like
0: right when we started this podcast, when you saw the urinals, I did, I did. I saw, (laughs) I went, I went, Hey, Mr. Tally Jones. Um, um, me and my my buddy, we do this podcast. Would you ever be on this show? Like maybe one day where we're not going to get to one. And he's like, oh yeah, for sure. Hey, have you got Vetus on the show? You need to get Vetus on the show. And we had Vetus on a few episodes back too, which is perfect. Yeah. All right. So last episode, Brandt, you gave us an assignment, Desert Island Discs, which I still am not really into because I feel like I'm just going to suck and you're going to slaughter me. I don't at know, this,
1: man. <laughs> at this? We are keeping score, by the way.
0: This is exactly why yeah. I, I'm not excited. And I know you're going to change the rules as we go through this. But they, the concept is you or I are on this 30-foot piece of sand sticking up in the middle of the ocean. There's one palm tree. We've got a big scruffy beard, a loincloth, nothing else. I think, no it's food.
1: You, I think it's you and I. We're both on this? Yeah, that way we get
0: 20 records to listen to instead of just 10. (laughs) What did I tell you? We'll probably
1: fight over what gets played.
0: Well, so here's the thing. If I knew that you were going to be bringing 10, I would have a different 10. Here is just a classic Brandt rule change.
1: I'm I'm guessing we, I'll be curious to see if there's any crossover. Yeah. But anyways. I'm not anticipating any, but we'll see. Okay.
0: So no food, huge beards, loincloths, record player. And 10 records each that we picked, not knowing which each other is going to bring to this desert island. Now, unfortunately, there's, there might be some overlap.
1: Yeah. Well, and I texted you this week, no, no comps either. Like no No, greatest hits comps.
0: Yeah. So that narrowed it down for me, actually, in terms of the DOA record I would pick for you. So that was, thanks. You kind of gave me an, an edge, I would say. Yeah. So. Please, please tell us how we're gonna do this. Well, I'm getting out my pen right now to keep a tally, out of ten.
1: <laughs> oh God. Um, and we're just gonna go back and forth. And these are minor in no particular order. My neither my guesses nor my ranking, my own ranking.
0: Okay, your own ranking? What do you mean? Oh, like, like uh, your picks. Your picks. There are no. Okay, I got you. Sorry. Right. Just let her let it fly. You want me to what? guess yours in order just pick one of mine okay black flag my war super easy check you got one of my 10
2: okay
1: now should we do a rule where if i guess or you guess a band and it's not the right album then you you say i have an album by that band on here but it's not that one
0: sure okay okay see more rule changes keep going
1: uh Faith No More, Angel Dust. <laughs> Correct.
0: <laughs> wow. That's amazing. All right. Um, okay, speaking of DOA, I'm just going to go with this one. I picked DOA
1: Murder for you. Awesome album. I don't have any DOA in my top 10. But if I did, it would probably be Something Better Change or 13 Flavors of Doom.
0: Oh, okay. Interesting. So that's a fail. And, fail. and
1: I'll just say like... I have a list of like 30 or 40 records here. And, and a lot of these, some of the albums in my top 10 are like for sure enshrined in there, but some could be swapped out for something like DOA yeah, on a so different, if, on a different day.
0: So of course you've got 20 extra ones to slot in, depending on what I say, just so you win. Nope, whereas, I've I, got, whereas I've, I've got a list of only 10. here. Uh, I've got my 10
1: written here. I just had to write them all out to to pick from. That's all. <laughs>
0: All right, so what's your next guess of uh, my my top 10? Jesus Lizard, Goat. No, no, no J-Liz okay. on mine. That's... No, but that would be probably my top Jesus Lizard record. So good one. Okay. Good one. So we're still tied at one apiece. We are, yep. Um, okay, for you, I picked uh, Lazy Cowgirls somewhere down the line.
1: The Lazy Cowgirls are on here, but not that record. Uh, which one? Ragged Soul. Okay. Okay, I'm going to go for you.
0: Wire, Pink Flag. Correct. Many, many Wire records were contemplated, but if you want pound for pound excellence, there's no substitute. Yeah. Uh, okay, Chesterfield Kings. Here are the Chesterfield Kings. No Chesterfield Kings on Ah, either. come on.
1: And if I was picking one, it would probably be something from later on like
0: uh from... now i see why you want that rule change because it's the rub in it's like it's not even on there and even if i was gonna pick that one still wrong <laughs> okay i'm gonna go with dinosaur jr you're living all over me oh no dino's on here but i picked where you been okay yeah where you been is my is, is not my Gateway album. Actually, Green Mind was my Gateway album, but Where You Been is the one that had just sunk its way right into my synapses permanently, and then I expended out into earlier albums, like You're Living All Over Me. But Where You Been, always. Okay, go. Ramones, Animal Boy. No Ramones
1: on here. Wow. See? But if I... <laughs> I my go-to Ramones album... <laughs> This con- I, I love Animal Boy, but this contradicts what I said a few weeks ago, but I would probably still go with Road to Ruin.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah. All right.
1: Uh, for you, I'm going to say Zappa, Roxy, and Elsewhere.
0: Very, very close. It was actually Chunga's Revenge. That's okay. on my list. Chunga's for sure. But very close. Roxy was like, I don't know, it's right, right behind it. But I just can't put Roxy on there. It has to be Chunga's. Okay. Okay, I put Fire Hose Raging Full On.
1: No Fire Hose in my top 10. Wow. That's like wow. number 11, though. Wow, amazing. Okay, yep. another miss. And I had that in yours, too, but I didn't include it. So um, I, I put, <laughs> in my guesses, I mean, I put Dag Nasty,
0: can I say? No, no Dag on my list. Okay. I was just listening to Field Day, though, today. And I, man, I love that record, too. Um, okay. Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street. No, that easily could have been in here though, but it's
1: not. Wow. It's a cliched pick kind of, because it's. For know, good reason though. For good reason. Yeah. It's an awesome album and it probably should be in here, but it's not. And any Stones
0: in your top 10? No. Wow.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, I okay. Know, right? Yeah. I went no means no. Why do they call me Mr. Happy?
0: Yes, that is on my list. I also included it on your list. Not on
1: mine. probably should be though it's the best no means no record and like i i'm gonna have so many regrets when we actually get to this desert island yeah but i guess we can listen to your no means no record so we're covered
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay um all right so what did i say here i said the stones no means no fire hose ramones cowgirls you
1: just just did a guess you just did no means no
0: chesterfield Kings. i just did one okay so now you got to ask back at me okay go for it
1: Husker Du, New Day Rising.
0: No Husker on my list. Wow. Yeah, right? And New Day would be my top, for sure. Okay. Okay. So far, I've only gotten one of yours. Well, That's I've so... only
1: gotten two, so you're
0: Okay. Not... Iron Maiden, Number of the
1: Beast. Nope, no Maiden. Wow. All right. Probably would have been peace of mind, though.
0: Okay, well, I only know one Iron Maiden <laughs> record. And I only know one song off it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, keep going.
1: Uh, Replacement, sorry, Ma. No, let it be. Ah, that would, I, uh, I was, it was a toss up between those two.
0: Yeah, I almost put both on my top 10. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think I'm at my last pick for you. This is it. Yeah. And and then there's like four more for you because you've, uh, you've kind of scooped me a a bit. So my last pick, because I've already done Rolling Stones, Exile, No. I did Black Flag My War. That's yes. No means no. Why do they call me Mr. Happy? We picked that for each other. Firehose, Raging Full On. Um, DOA Murder, Ramones, Animal Boy, Cowgirls, Chesterfield Kings. My last pick for you. Yeah. Metallica, Kill All. No. Ah. See, Would see, have been
1: justice for all.
0: See, I don't know you.
1: Well, you're going to kick yourself when I read you my the rest of mine, I think. Some are pretty obvious. Some maybe not. Um, okay, my last pick for you is the Clash, self-titled.
0: Nope, London Calling. Ah, I had that. So you're missing three of my picks still. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, Do we're done.
1: To- we're we've nailed. We've named each other's top ten. So I won three to one. But. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you've okay okay yeah so you won all right but you missed three on my list
1: okay I'll tell you just the other bands that I wrote down in my guessing like to guess from okay Uh, I wrote the clash I wrote replacements uh, I wrote Melvin's as a possibility no I wrote wipers as a possibility no Minutemen slash watt slash Firehose.
0: I did have raging full on on mine yeah I had I had raging and why do they call me mr. happy on both ours okay I had Shellac on your list as a
1: possible band.
0: No. No? Not top 10.
1: I had Gang of Four as a possibility.
0: Yep, I have Solid Gold as the record on my top 10. Undeniable. I had The Kinks as one of your possible bands. Ooh, yeah. I never talk about The Kinks
1: on the show, but that's a good one. I had Sebado as one of your bands. Oh, yeah. And Mud
0: Honey as one of your bands. Mm, yeah. Nope. So we have got all but my final top 10 record would have been Fugazi Repeater. Ah, I didn't
1: even think of Fugazi. That's so obvious. For me? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, top 10 Fugazi Repeater. Yeah. For sure. What do you want to do? Do you want me to tell you the albums you missed? Oh, yeah. Tell me what I missed, man. I only got one. You have have nine to go. Well,
1: some of these are kind of obvious and some maybe not. So Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction. Oh, yeah. Jane's Addiction, Nothing Shocking. Oh, yeah. Rollins band, end of silence.
0: Wow, top ten, hey. Oh
1: yeah, totally. Yeah, I can see it. Sex Pistols, never mind the bollocks. Mm-hmm. Probably the greatest rock album ever made, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like a game changer on the level of like Nirvana or something. Mm-hmm. Here's one I I don't know if you you and I have ever talked about my love for this album, but Lemonheads, it's a shame about Ray.
0: Yeah, not specifically. I don't yeah. think so. Just interesting. Yeah,
1: still li- listen to it. I've listened to that album just consistently since it came out and I still just takes me back, you know?
0: Yeah. It is rock solid, man. Yep. Okay. I got to listen to that record again. Yeah. It's it's good. Yeah. It's
1: amazing. Uh, Dictators, Blood Brothers.
0: Oh yeah. Just the most
1: solid rock album ever. We got a pipeline. Yeah. Alice Cooper, Billion Dollar Babies.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Alice, you've actually got tattoos of Alice on you. Yeah. That's one I
1: go back to over and over. I mean those all those albums they did with the Alice Cooper group are some of the best rock albums ever made. period.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then I put Bad Brain's quickness.
0: Oh, yeah, I was I actually that's so you know how you had a bunch of like possible Ryans? Yeah that's really the only possible brand that out of the list. yeah.
1: and that, that record I... that record actually has something in common with this record.
0: With uh, El Cabong,
1: Yeah. The music was written and then the
0: the, the lyrics
1: lyri- got added later.
0: Oh yeah. Right. Right. Interesting connection.
1: Here's some of my other bands that I jotted down just to like, when I was trying to decide, I put the cynics, you got to consider the stooges. Mm. Sabbath, of course, DOA, Ramones, Cheap Trick, Hanoi Rocks, Nicky Sutton and the Jacobites could have easily been in there. The Damned Black Album.
0: I had a Nikki Sutton record mm-hmm. on here, yep.
1: Heartbreakers, The Hangman, love that Radio Birdman record still. Probably could, should have put some Anthrax or some Slayer in there, just or some Priest, you know. I guess to get my metal fix, I'm going to have to listen to Rollins Band.
0: So you would put Justice before Kill them All, hey? For me, yeah. Is that just because it's that was your entry, that record?
1: Uh, it wasn't my entry, but it was... They were my favorite band when that came out, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I I listen to that album. It's still the one I go back to if I want to listen to Metallica.
0: No way. Yeah, way. What What do you think about uh, its uh, its sonic quality? I mean, it's taken a lot of hits over the years in terms of how that record was produced, right? Ah, uh,
1: to me, I like it how it, exactly how it is. I wouldn't change
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's... you like it. You like it better than what's the other one, Lulu, Lula? <laughs> speaking Metallica people are really into their latest new album what's it called the yellow one uh 72 seasons I think yeah did you get it what do you think of it
1: Uh, I like it I mean is it is it like a return to form like people say it is I think so I don't know everybody I I like the last two records before that two are are good I bought them both Death Magnetic and Hardwired everybody shits on Metallica right it's the thing to do it's like shitting on, I don't know, Nickelback or something like that. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, Nickelback deserves to get shit on. I'm not sure Metallica
0: <laughs> does. Yeah. 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 I've, I've, I've never really, I only ever owned, um, ride the lightning and kill them all on CD yeah. and I had to buy them as imports. I'm pretty sure I paid, you know, probably 40 bucks a CD for them. And the, the day with GST and PST on them, it was ridiculous. Those are the only two I've ever owned. Yeah. So I've never really got into injustice. I just remember the video for one. That's what I remember. I don't know. I've
1: come around on Metallica. Like when they released the back black album, I disowned them, you know, but I was also like, <laughs> at too cool. Age, I, too yeah. too Cool. Sellouts. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I totally get that. <laughs> I totally get it. Yeah. Is there anything, are there any redeeming qualities on the black album when you look back on it and listen to it now?
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, really? I I can see why they went in that direction. They've talked, they've talked in interviews since then about how when they were touring in Justice for All, where you know the songs are like eight minutes long and they're these kind of prog metal epics, where they would look out the and the crowd would just be yawning, you know.
0: Wow. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah. Get him something punchy. Hit him over the head. El kabong! Yeah. <laughs> Shall we? Yeah. Let's do it. History lesson, part one. All right, man. So here we are at our third Trotsky Ice Pick record on the show, and I love it. Just for our listeners, if you want to go back and do the deep dive on the Trotsky Ice Pick history, there's definitely a lot of great history that we cover in the interview, and uh, we've got some nugs and some spiels here as part of this episode. But go back to episode 197, the baby LP Trotsky Ice Picks' third album, of course, but the first one released in uh, catalog numerical order on SST. On that album, we had Kel Johansson as a, a guest, and we talked a lot about John Telly Jones and the urinals and 100 Flowers and Happy Squid Records on that episode. So 197, the baby LP. Episode 239, we had the Poison Summer record on the show. Doesn't seem like that long ago, actually. That was their second album released in 1986 on uh, Old Scratch. We had Vitas Matare as a guest on that show, and we did another deep dive into that version of Trotsky. And of course, you know, that was their second album. Their first album, Poison Summer by Danny and the Doorknobs. Also originally released on Old Scratch. That one is repurposed for SST 254, so we'll get to that this year. But now we are at 246 El Cabong, the John Tally Jones era of Trotsky Ice Pick. Very cool to get into this. John, of course, from the urinals, 100 Flowers. We'll talk a bit about Rad Waste later on into the show, Happy Squid Records. Um, but really, you know, Kel and John were both in The Urinals and 100 Flowers. And that's the connection. That's what kind of brought John into the fold in uh, Trotsky Ice Pick for this record. There's Kel Johansson, Vetus, uh, John Rosewall on bass. And then on this record, this version of the band, Hunter Crowley had come in on drums, replacing Jason, but Jason is on some of the tracks. And then we've got John Talley Jones stepping out from behind the bass and uh the frontman type of role very cool to get into this one
1: yeah when we get done the the Trotsky stuff we're going to have to lay it out like we did with the descendants like which order to listen to it <laughs> of our of our, episodes? of our episodes yeah
0: yeah i know right i mean i guess arguably you really have to start with episode 254 but we'll see how bad we screw that up
1: yeah, so just to recap what you were saying, Ryan, if I have this right, the core of the lineup is Kale Johansson on guitar, sometimes bass and vocals on previous records. Uh, Vitas on guitar, some keys, and up until this album, lead vocalist. Vitas's former bandmate in the last, John Frank was the drummer on that very first Poison Summer record that we haven't gotten to yet. John Ro- Rosewall also played bass on it, I believe, uh, at least on one track on that record. That second Poison Summer album, under the Trotsky name, is Kale Vetus, uh, and John Rosewall, with Jamie Lennon added in on keyboards. For the Baby album, Vetus and Kale are joined by John Rosewall on bass and, and some guitar. Jamie Lennon is out for Baby, and John Frank is is replaced by Jason Kahn on drums. And now here we are at Alcabong, Vetus, Kale, John Roswell, Hunter Crowley, who you just mentioned is the new drummer. Mm. And the big addition is Kale's former bandmate in the urinals and 100 flowers, John Talley Jones on lead vocals. And if memory serves, we do a bit of a deep dive on the urnals and the last on a previous Trotsky episode. So we, we won't get too much into that here. Um, uh, yeah, 197, the baby one. Yeah, We do get into a little bit of it with John in the interview, so maybe we should throw to John to kind of bring us up to speed on this era of Trotsky, as well as the super interesting way this album was conceived, which I kind of teased a little bit when I was talking about quickness. Right on. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by John Tally jones John, thanks for being on the show.
3: My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Okay, before we get to El Cabong, I want to go all the way back with you. Uh, It sounds like you moved around a bit as a kid. Were you like an army brat?
3: Yes, I was. I was an army brat. I was born in uh, California, but I spent uh, probably only the first three months of my life there. Um, We moved to Georgia, Vermont, Kansas, Germany, Northern Virginia, near the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, Texas and then finally back to California Wow I've been all over the place
1: no kidding did it level off at any point like when you were in high school for example
3: no actually I spent two years of my high school in uh, Northern Virginia and the final two years in San Antonio Texas Wow and then I went to the University of Texas in Austin for two years and then finished up at UCLA in Los Angeles
2: okay
1: when did you get interested in playing music
3: um in about 1978 uh when punk rock happened it mm-hmm. seemed to me that that was sort of the perfect opportunity to be expressive without necessarily knowing how to play an instrument mm-hmm. i was uh i was in film school so i was uh comfortable with the idea of self-expression but it was a, of a visual nature and then uh suddenly punk happened and it became more immediate you know in a sense easier to do because it didn't require a crew you know it required maybe one or two other like-minded people right which i found in uh kevin and kel
1: what was what were you interested in getting getting into with film school
3: well i was interested in something that was entirely impractical and that was to make small personal experimental films and uh, the film schools teach you the skills so that you can become part of a larger commercial community. Right. Hollywood, for instance. Uh, and I wasn't really interested in that. I, I wanted to make um, more weird, small, personal statements, like um, my the people I was interested in following were people like Kenneth Anger—I don't know mm-hmm. if you're familiar yep. with the experimental film—but yeah, uh, you know, the, kind of,
1: I know him through the Stones mostly. Yeah. Oh yeah, of yeah. course, right? Yeah,
3: <laughs> of course you do.
2: Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, um, there were a lot
3: of other filmmakers who were doing that kind of personal thing, uh, but you know, it wasn't lucrative. You couldn't necessarily make a, a career out of that, and uh, I didn't really want to become a, you know. A, a, second assistant director of photography or anything like that. I mean, I think I, I probably would have been pretty good at it, but I wasn't interested, and I didn't really see the big picture. Mm-hmm. Punk rock was so immediate. It just swept everything away, and I had to do it. It was compelling. Yeah. Did you finish film school? Yes, I did. I have a film degree.
1: Oh, good, yeah. Were you making, these, making films already, like, in your high school years?
3: Yeah, I made about... 30-plus Super 8 movies between 1973 and 19, in, in, in well into the 1990s. Wow. And then um, more recently, uh, I've been making the occasional music video. I did the last two Trotsky Icepick music videos with Tom Hofer. Mm-hmm. He and I collaborated on them. So those are up on YouTube. You can see them. Mm-hmm.
1: That's cool. Okay, so this, uh, the forming of the urinals happened while you were at UCLA. That's correct. Were the rest of the guys going to UCLA, or how did that happen?
3: Oh yeah, they were, we were all in the same dorm, we were all on the same floor. Kevin lived down the hall, and Kel lived next door, and uh, we would have lunch together at the cafeteria <laughs> and discuss you know, cultural issues and yeah. music and stuff like that. And we were all kind of galvanized by this. It just seemed so possible for people who didn't really have any kind of musical proclivities to pick up an instrument and make a statement. And so we did.
1: Okay, so when you say when when punk rock happened, what are we talking, like the Sex Pistols? Or are we talking like the local LA scene? Was there a local LA scene at that point?
3: Well, before I was in Los Angeles, I was up in uh, Marin County, just north of San Francisco from about 1976 to 77. Um, and I would go to the Mubuhai Gardens and see some little local bands like the Nuns and the Avengers. And I saw the Dills and the Dictators and uh, F Word. So it was there was that element. There was the local element, but also I was going to Aquarius Records and rather Rip Records at Berkeley, yep. and buying records by the Saints and the Ramones and Richard Hell. So uh, I understood sort of the the global part of it as well as the more immediate local part. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could go and see a punk band every every weekend if I wanted to. Yep, um, in San Francisco. But I was also very much interested in what was going on in the U.K. and Australia mm-hmm. and all over the U.S., New York, Detroit, uh, Cleveland, all those all those other scenes.
1: Um, when did you meet Vetus?
3: I met Vetus on Halloween Eve 1978. Uh, that is when the three-piece, the trio version of the urinals, had our inaugural performance at the dorm in which we were living at ucla and um vitus was in attendance <laughs> and he introduced himself after our set he was very impressed mm-hmm. uh even though we were thoroughly incompetent we were just sort of obnoxious right and noisy and and unschooled but that appealed to him and he said i want to record you guys you guys should put out a record <laughs> and we thought what is this guy talking about? Uh, but he came through, you know, he um, he recorded us. He recorded the first EP and he showed us how to make a label and get get the record pressed and get it out there. There was no distribution at the beginning, aside from, I think, through Bomp Records. The rest of it was just us putting the records on consignment at various local record stores around L.A. County.
1: Right. Once that happened, I'm assuming you like started playing in Hollywood and, and things like that.
3: Well, it took a minute. Um, we uh, we had to let's see the first the first show that we did off campus. We were doing a couple of things on campus. We did a, a dorm show or two, and then we um, we played. We went actually went to Austin because I had connections there, having had, having had gone to the University of Texas. Mm-hmm. So we were invited out by some friends of ours, and we did two nights in Austin. So that was the first time we played off of the UCLA campus. And then uh, we started to do Hollywood shows, and then South Bay shows. OK. Who were the? We up with uh, Black Flag and people like that. Right. Uh,
1: who were the Austin shows with?
3: Um. So the people we knew in Austin were associated with the Huns. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had Phil Tolstead, uh, who was the lead singer of Huns, as a uh, high school friend in San Antonio, and then he was my college roommate at UT. And uh, Tom Huckabee was the drummer for the Huns. And Dan Transmission was the keyboard player. So these are people we knew, and they invited us out. We ended up playing... Two nights at Raoul's, which was the punk club there. Yep. The first night was with um the reversible chords, I think. And the second night was with the Norvells. And I might have those bills switched, but those were the two support acts. Mm. Do you and know Sally Norvell who was later with um uh, Kid Congo in Congo Oh, Nova, yep.
1: yep, I know that band. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: Do you like any idea how many shows the the urinals played?
3: There is a list that I, uh, I at this point, it's in the hundreds,
2: definitely. Yeah. Yep.
3: But I, I I don't know exactly. I'd have to refer to it. I'm not sure exactly where it is. My my, um, my wife keeps track of it.
2: Yeah,
1: I guess what I'm trying to get at is in the band's first incarnation, you know, like, Oh, okay. You know how long were you? How many shows did you play in? In I think a, a relatively short amount of time.
3: It's really pretty funny because uh, we were reminiscing about this. Uh, Kevin and I were talking about this recently, and the the idea that we had was it was impossible for us to find shows, and shows were few and far between. And then we went back and looked at the list, and it was <laughs> like we were playing every two weeks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was actually pretty regular, and and there was a lot of um growth in our competency because of that. We just didn't recognize it at the time. Yeah. We wanted to play more.
1: Yeah, well looking back now, thinking of a local band playing as much as some of the bands in that scene played and as often like is just unheard of, you know, you would just totally kill your draw, but I guess, you know, the scene was pretty new and we probably were lucky. Yeah.
3: We were lucky because L.A. County is pretty big. So, uh, you know, we could play in Hollywood one night and then the South Bay the next night. And you'd get two entirely different clientele.
1: Okay, what's the Arrow uh, Book Club? I I heard it described (laughs) as an alter ego of the yearnals. Explain it to me. What is it?
3: Okay, well, um, the Arrow Book Club was an attempt for us to play um, music that was not written but was uh, improvised. Mm. Uh, And we felt the best way to do that was to switch instruments and play something that we did not play in the urinals. So, for instance, I might play drums for one session or keyboards for another session. Kel was not allowed to play (laughs) guitar. (laughs) Kevin was not allowed to play drums. Right and um we did a couple of performances that way with some additional band members including our spouses
4: uh-huh.
3: and um, uh, there's actually uh two of, two of the recordings have been issued one on the Arab um sorry one on the uh, happy squid sampler mm-hmm. which is being reissued by space case later this year and there was another track that was put out on the la free music society compilation his name I can't remember right now but uh, you know we we did have a couple of recordings that were issued
2: okay
1: and then you decide to change your name to a hundred flowers now was that like was the did you find the name the urinals limiting or was it more because you were changing the sound
3: of the band Um, it was both it was limiting in the sense that there there were certain clubs that would not book a band called the urinals such as the Starwood we um, were trying to get a gig there and we we were generating, we were getting kind of a name for ourselves and we were playing on legitimate bills, but they told us there are two bands that were in, will never appear on our marquee, the urinals and the dead Kennedys. <laughs> 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 so we were in good, company. you're
1: in good company. I was um, going
3: to say, yeah. But, but more important was the fact that um, hardcore was starting to happen. Yeah. And we didn't want to be mistaken for a hardcore band because we weren't.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, we were punk in the sense of the initial definition of punk, which was a lot more wide open and interpretive. You could do more with it. Hardcore was much more dogmatic and specific. The kind of music was um, was narrow, and we didn't feel like we belonged to that, and we certainly didn't want to imply that we were hardcore because the audience would have hated us. Right. You know, we were sort of... we were pre hardcore punk rock yeah so it was necessary for us to sort of redefine ourselves plus we were learning to play a little bit more sophisticatedly and um more influences were starting to come in psychedelia for instance and funk Mm -hmm. started to make an appearance so we were moving in an entirely different direction from from hardcore
1: songs are getting longer
3: yeah and a little bit more um not subtle exactly, because they were all kind of aggressive, but more nuanced,
1: yeah, you know when you hear about that first wave of l a punk you know, like the germs and X and you know all the bands, I think like the yearnals really are starting to get the credit they deserve for like the huge influence that you, that you have do you Do you see it that
2: way?
3: um I do, yes. Uh, I feel like we were relatively unknown at that time, but the recordings have stood the test of time, and people have responded to the material, which is really gratifying. I'm very happy; it's uh, continuing to resonate.
1: Yeah, it seems like the band, just like the kind of, I don't know, the legend of the Urinals, just keeps, you know, growing.
3: That's fine. (laughs) I'm okay with that. But it certainly doesn't reflect the reality of the moment that we found ourselves in back then. Yeah. You know, we were we were getting some good some good bills and people were recognizing that we had something to offer, but we were still kind of a, a niche experience, you know. Yeah. So we were playing with people like Black Flag and the Go Go's and uh and the last, um which was interesting because Musically, those bands didn't have anything in common with with one another, but we would we could slot ourselves into those bills. It was a much more um, colorful and open culture at that Uh moment.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, it's like you're. you're, Yeah. I mean, you could do that before hardcore, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah, you could. Yeah. You didn't have to have you know five punk bands for a dollar, all sounding identical.
1: Yeah. No, it was like just. Let's just put these five weird bands together because who else are they going to play with? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> okay, so before we get, before you go into Trotsky, was Rad Waste your primary project post 100 Flowers?
3: Yes, it was, right. So um, 100 Flowers broke, uh, we broke up in 1983, I believe, the same year that the album came out. And then um, Michael Corey had been a fan of uh, 100 Flowers. He had been in 17 Pygmies Mm. and we started to write material. And I think we spent a good 18 months or possibly two years just writing stuff uh, in his bedroom before we put the band together. And his idea was to have a drum corps, not a drummer, but four drummers each playing part of a kit yeah and so uh that took uh months of, of rehearsal because the drummers had to learn how to uh, play with one another and create one beat out of multiple parts right so it was very complicated but the result was you know, it's massive these drummers all going at it it was really magnificent mm-hmm. um so yeah um so that's how I sort of got reacquainted with um, Trotsky was because we were recording an album, a Red Waste album at Vetus' studio. Mm. He was engineering it. Uh, Keith Levine from Public Image was producing initially, but he only lasted a few days.
1: Uh-huh. What was so, that
3: experience uh, like? <laughs> a bit chaotic. Yeah. Um, Keith had other... Interests, mm-hmm. but um, you know he was he was very supportive. He was into what we were doing, uh, but he's being pulled in different directions. So we probably did three or four days worth of work in the studio before he left. Mm. And uh, Petus was kind enough to allow us to complete the project. How did that happen and that so, you um, that you ended up
1: hooking up with with Keith Levine?
3: I don't. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, actually, I think that was Michael Corey. Uh, it was a avid club goer, and I think he'd gone to Power Tools or one of the other underground dance clubs in L.A. Mm-hmm. and met Keith there. Keith had just been had had left Public Image, and was in L.A. looking to make music and get a record deal. And uh, they got to talking. Keith is actually kind of a huge influence on Michael. Michael's playing is is informed by keith Mm -hmm. so uh it was kind of like working with one of his idols um and it was great for a while uh Keith was like i say very supportive he actually um he did sound for us on a couple of live shows one in san francisco and one at the uh at a club downtown in los angeles Mm. and um you know like he went with us to Capitol records to try and make a deal and which didn't happen, right, but you know he was there he was he was very helpful, but once we got into the studio, uh, things didn't work out very well,
1: yeah, so this album that you were recording i am sorry, I don't have it in front of me right now, but this is this the album that came out you know five ten years ago, whenever that was,,
3: it's recently five years ago, maybe yeah. End times next tape
2: that's the one, yeah.
3: Yeah, actually, probably only three years, I think. Yeah, but yes, that's the album.
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: So, sometime after the baby album comes out, they approach you about joining Trotsky, or how does how does that happen?
3: Um, I can't say what was going on internally with the band. That's Vitas and Kel would know that, but it there was my understanding is it was a there was a need for a dedicated lead vocalist. Mm-hmm. They felt they needed, um, someone who was there to be a front man. And, uh, Vitas has always been a big fan of my singing. Mm-hmm. He's always been very supportive of that. Um, you know, Kel and I have had periods where we're not talking to one another, but this is one of those periods where we were yep. and he was amenable to it, even though I, we can get on each other's nerves <laughs> every once in a while. Yep. <laughs> um, but, um, so they approached me and said, well, we'd, we'd really like you to join the band, become a singer and a lyricist. And Brad Waste was, uh, we were stuck in the middle of recording this project, which was, it was stretching out longer and longer. I think we actually had to take a year off after the initial tracks were done, and then we had to come back a year later to finish them up. So there was some disorganization within the band. Band members were leaving or getting new ones coming in. This seemed like a perfect opportunity for me to continue to be actively creative in a way that I hadn't before. With regard to urinals and Hunter Flowers and Rad Waste, it was always either me writing material and bringing bringing it into the band or working with Kel or Michael Corey together and creating something. In this case, with Trotsky, it was the material was already the music was already written and recorded for El Gabon,
4: Mm-hmm.
3: or was in the process of being recorded. I was not part of that process. Thetis uh, so would just present me with tracks and say, "Here, <laughs> come up with something for this." <laughs> the only the only specific direction I was given was when he. Uh, gave me El Cabang and said this song needs to be called El Cabang.
2: Ah, okay. I said, oh, okay,
3: okay. That's a really good simile for somebody being hit over the head and experiencing um, the tremendous shift that takes place in your world when you fall in love. Right. So right. I, I approached it from that perspective.
1: Okay, w- the idea of just being a frontman with no bass that didn't. That didn't. Terrifying. It was. Terrifying. Uh,
3: yeah. <laughs> I had no idea what to do with my hands. You know, they were usually busy playing the bass. Yeah. And suddenly there was nothing there in front of me but a microphone, and it was very awkward for the first, I don't know, several months I think, and then, <laughs> one day, uh, "Crime in the City" solution played at Rhino Records, mm. and Simon Bonney is there. League, uh, league guy. Yep. And his performance was riveting. I thought, oh, I see what he's doing with his hands. I wonder if I could do something like that. It was very his his performance was very expressive and very physical, mm-hmm. but not physical violent. It was more almost feminine. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it worked in the context of the material. And so I I borrowed that approach from him, and um, I. I used that as the basis for coming up with my own stage persona. Okay. And it it really (laughs) freed me because I really need to move around in order to uh, make my diaphragm do what it needs to do in order to sing Mm -hmm. those songs. Um, So it was very helpful. It was like vocal calisthenics in your gut. And to be able to express yourself through movement, I found liberating. Yeah. Yeah. it sounds but, like you know, maybe I you. took me a while to get there.
1: Yeah, well, it, it sounds like you maybe ended up enjoying it.
3: Um, yes, I hated it at first. I was really self conscious. I felt awkward. And then once I got into it a little bit more, I realized I shouldn't be worrying about it, and it became more expressive and less self conscious. It became more organic.
1: Yeah, well, that's the trick, is to get out of your own head and <laughs> not think about it, I
3: suppose, yeah. right? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, that's absolutely true. But it was a new skill. It was uh, something I, I hadn't even considered before. Yeah. So I learned a lot with Trotsky when, when I was asked to come on board. And another thing I learned was that um, it, it was a challenge to write music, I'm sorry, lyrics. For music that that existed
2: yeah, for someone
3: else's someone else's creation. Um, so I had to find something that I felt I had in common with that music to use that as a linchpin to create the words.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask, like, do you you know, it is a weird way to write. For starters, I mean, what if you would have said no? <laughs> I guess they would have just had to. Write, you know, Vetus would have had to write lyrics, I suppose.
3: Yeah, well, they would have been um, following the trajectory of Baby uh, and the Poison Summer albums, I guess. Yeah. It, uh, I think this changed everything and changed it for me and it changed it for them.
1: Yeah. Like no scratch vocal or guide vocal at all. Just uh, pure instrumentals when they gave you tapes. Um
3: There may have been one or two guide vocals. Vetus may have had a lyrical, uh, or rather a um, harmonic element that he wanted, to, um, excuse me, melodic is where I'm looking for, a melodic uh, line that he may have wanted to integrate. And I was free to either follow that or disregard it, but that only existed in a couple of instances. Most of the stuff that I was writing at that point was um, entirely my own creation based on what I was listening to, what I was hearing in, in the music.
1: I'm just picturing, you know, like you writing a lyric and and or a, a part of a chorus or something, and and thinking to yourself, "Geez, that really should repeat there," <laughs> but yeah. it can't, right? Because it's already recorded. Like, did that kind of stuff happen?
3: No, I had to tailor it in order to make it work. Yeah. So I found, I found that there were places where there was a natural repetition, and that became the chorus. Mm. I mean, you know, Vitas and Kel are capable of writing. Um, very sophisticated pop songs, with verses and choruses, I and mean, it yeah. they really they really stand out as verses and choruses. So it wasn't really that difficult. It's not like it was all improvised. Or.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, I, it I well thought out. Yeah, I don't mean to not give those guys credit. I mean, obviously, they knew how to structure a song, you know, in a in a way that lyrics would fit into it. I just mean it's. I I guess I'm just asking if it was difficult for you to do as a songwriter.
3: Um, I don't remember that it was difficult. It was just new and exciting. It was an entirely different approach for me. And I felt like I was coming up with stuff that was viable, and I was also learning to write characterization Mm -hmm. and narrative, which was a new thing. I I think I'd done one song with a narrative, and that was with Waste, It was The Ballad of Jenny, which has got a story associated with it. And then with El Cabang, I was writing characters and I was writing stories essentially.
2: Okay, well putting
3: those well, characters into the stories.
1: Let's let's talk about some of them then. So, if you don't mind, we'll go through the tracks a little bit. Um conveniences okay. of life. <laughs> um so that it, it's interesting lyrics from a 2023 perspective like um pulse of it's the times life, right it? here in my pocket. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> like, well, that's not what I meant. But, yeah. Um yeah, well, it, what's funny about it, it? When you write about technology, you'd better be better be prepared for the fact that that technology is going to be baffling to anybody in six months. So,
1: <laughs> like don't laser talk discs, about
3: you mean? <laughs> yeah, right. Laser discs, yeah. modems, yeah. Um, microfiche. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was. It's. Uh, I thought I was capturing the moment, and the moment was gone in six months. So by the time the record came out, it was, it was absurd. Yeah. Uh but it is what it is. It's a snapshot of that particular moment in time. Yeah. And uh there's the the bridge in the middle, which Vitas helped me with. This is the um, this is the coked actually, up wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So that was a moment in time too. That was sort of out there happening in the culture. Yeah. And um that's the part that I think is resonant, not the rest of the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree.
1: Yeah, well hopefully that was so I've, one I've of learned your that last year. Yeah, hopefully that was one of your character uh, <laughs> your character driven ideas and, and not reality. Yeah, I
3: can blame that on I can blame that on the character. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the character is stuck in time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the light pours out of me. I, I assume magazine was a was an influence for everybody in the band.
3: Um that was something Kel really wanted to do. And I love that song. I feel like I overperformed it. It just seems uh, that it lacks any kind of subtlety whatsoever. Uh, but I was really sort of feeling my oats with this band. I was trying to become a singer, and uh, I think I, I think I overextended myself on that one. But it was fun to sing. Okay, uh,
1: and some of these songs have Jason Kahn on drums and some Hunter Crowley. Was was Jason in the band when yeah. you joined, or, or was it Hunter?
3: Um, Jason had already completed all of his tracks. So when I was there, I'd come in, I'd see Hunter periodically working on the next thing. Like I say, I wasn't really there for any of the musical tracking. Yeah. But uh, I know that Jason was gone and Hunter was there.
1: We haven't actually seen Hunter on the show. T- tell me a bit about Hunter.
3: Um, he is hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) He's a brilliant rock drummer. Yeah. He's a great engineer. Um, you know, he engineered, he recorded the most recent Trotsky album. Mm -hmm. I haunted myself uh, at his studio. Mm -hmm. He works uh, in Hollywood as a sound engineer for Hollywood shoots on location. Okay. And uh, you should interview him sometime. He's really uh, very interesting guy, and and the the bands he's been in have, are phenomenal and uh, worth talking about. Yeah. I don't know that there are any other SST bands he was in. I think he was in the Leaving Trains for a minute.
1: Sounds, yep, that awesome. sounds right. Yep, I'll add him to my he list. Was in the Brian
3: Jonestown Massacre and a bunch of other stuff.
1: Well, then he's got some stories <laughs> from being in that band. I'm sure
3: yeah I think he probably does yeah
1: (laughs) okay the next one and I mean some of these you might not have you know some of the 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 Vetus tracks Yolanda won't give me a job won't you give me a job well
3: you give. well you Mm -hmm. give me a job yeah uh so that's a Vetus song obviously and I I uh, later ended up uh, doing that live yeah I was
1: gonna uh, ask yeah did you do like baby material and Danny and the Doorknob stuff and, and everything?
3: Uh, there was, yeah, some, but not a whole lot. I think we did Incident, did Dante's Flame, uh, one or two other songs from that era that were reintroduced into the set in order to get uh, give a more well-rounded picture of the band. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I started singing some of those. But mm, 80% of a given set would have been stuff that I uh, had a hand in writing the lyrics for. Right.
1: Okay, the next one is Cornfield. Now, this is one, mm-hmm. of, one of yours. Like, So, you know, you mentioned, like, listening, when you're listening to these, does it does the music evoke an idea for you, do you think?
3: I, I don't recall um, exactly how that came to be Cornfield. It could be the Venus and I were discussing it. I'm not sure. It's mm-hmm. um, it's another, it's a narrative song. It's 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 an extension of an old Twilight Zone episode, uh-huh. that yeah. start Billy Mummy, um, but it takes the narrative into the future, and flips it around a little bit, such that the uh, people who are being put upon by this psychic child uh, get their comeuppance by bringing back. The things that he is buried in the cornfield—I'm mm. uh, sure you're familiar with the, the narrative. Yeah, I
1: am. I, 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 I was out. trying to figure out. I was actually googling, googling uh, this movie, *Children of the Corn*, to see if that was out at when at this point. <laughs> I, I I knew it was from something, but I I couldn't. I didn't know what.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. but I think it was written by Jerome Bixby, if memory serves. Yeah, that and makes he, sense now. Yeah. Joe Dante did a remake of it in the Twilight Zone movie from the early the mid '80s, I think.
1: Primarily, when you're doing harmonies like in this song, that's you and Venus.
3: Sometimes it's me, ah. um, and I can no longer tell which is Venus and which is me because our voices are kind of similar. Yep. Um, I did. I certainly did harmonies on many of these songs. I can't speak to which ones. Vetus would have provided his own. If it's harmony, it's probably me, but if it's an additional vocal part that's elsewhere in the mix, that's probably Vetus.
2: Okay,
1: 106 degrees. Another. This is a Kale song. Um, his songs tend to be a little bit, I don't know, less poppy maybe sometimes, a little darker than than Vitus's songs.
3: So, I think they're more atmospheric, so yeah. they're a little bit more nuanced, yep. you know, less pop, you're, you're right about that. Yeah. 106 degrees. Uh, you know, I noticed something when I was listening to the records night and that is that some of these songs are uh, paired mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. to me, 106 degrees and hotel belong with each other because the, this, the atmosphere of 106 degrees could be something that's taking place in one of the rooms in the hotel ah. <laughs> described in that song. Yeah. So, um, I'm kind of observing this. Also, uh, we're not there yet, but, um, when we get to it, um, I'm hearing uh, thematic similarities between Elkabong and Astronomer, but we'll get there when we get there. Okay. So anyway, I was kind of noticing that there were threats. Oh, yeah. And Long Grave, Baggy Soul, later on the album, is um, twinned with Burry Manilow from Baby, because they're both about pop music and people who create pop music. Mm. Anyway. That's just an observation. Uh, we can get into it when we get into those songs, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but 106, 106 Degrees, Kel came up with this beautiful, atmospheric, really weird uh, tone poem. And I thought, well, there's there's nothing. I, I can't work against this. I have to, like, immerse myself in it. And so I wanted lyrics that were sort of dreamy and a delivery that was almost slowed down. It was narcotic. Yeah. Um, about someone who's experiencing this sort of hallucination during the fever which is why it's called 160 degrees. Oh, uh, yeah. It works. So just, it works like really well. That. Yeah. I I I'm very happy with the way that turned out. It's mm-hmm. really nice and beautiful and haunting.
1: Yeah. Uh, you said you were saying you listened to this earlier. Did you listen to the CD version? I did. Okay, good. Yeah. So we can maybe talk about these CD <laughs> tracks too. Um,
3: yes, we can. <laughs>
1: this car is not blue. And, uh, again, it's a Vetus vocals. The sample on this, any idea where that's from? It's from a movie, for yes. sure.
3: Uh, it's from the Witches of Eastwick. The ah, George
1: Miller movie. Yeah. <laughs>
3: it's a great sample. Uh, which I have not seen, but uh, this is what Vetus told me.
2: Uh, okay.
3: Yeah, So that song um, is based on Story that either vetus was told I don't think he experienced this about a used car salesman who had a red car on the lot and uh a customer came in who was colorblind yeah who insisted that he wanted to buy a blue car. <laughs> I
1: think I know where this story
3: the, uh, is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you <they> do. <laughs> the salesman sold him a red car yeah. and insisted <laughs> that it was blue and so it's kind of a takedown of that kind of uh, mentality somebody would take advantage of someone else for their own uh, economic purposes or right, financial right. purposes
1: okay then the next so, one is about bad. about that boot of mine i i feel like you know having just unlimited access to a studio yeah, you get. You're gonna get tracks like uh, about that boot of mine.
3: <laughs> okay. Well, the story about this is uh, apparently Jason announced to the band that he was leaving Trotsky, and uh, Vitas asked him, "Well, before you go, we, we need a little bit more material. Is could you go into the studio and just you know provide us with a beat, and we'll construct a song around it?
4: <laughs> yeah.
3: And instead of uh, playing a straight beat, Jason decided he was going to play something." To which absolutely nothing could be paired, right, so <laughs> of course, it was a perverse experiment, so yeah. brilliantly, uh you know, I think what Vetus did was he created a musique concrete piece with a lot of extraneous elements. Now he's listening to this, and it's seven, is it seven minutes and fifty four seconds? oh my god, <laughs> it's long, yeah, but uh I found it very compelling. And um, you know it is a bonus track. It really shouldn't be in the middle of the record, which is perverse.
2: Yeah, it's but
3: it's... <laughs> um, as a standalone track, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, and the uh, the um, the dialogue that's dropped in is from uh, Hound of the Baskervilles, the nineteen I want to say thirty-eight or thirty-nine mm-hmm. version with Basil Rathbone. So that's all dialogue from the movie and dropped in and manipulated. Right. I think it works. It doesn't really belong on this record, but it's kind of cool as a palate cleanser in the middle of the record.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the choice to drop these three songs in the middle of the CD is an interesting one.
3: <laughs> <That's dumb. laughs> um, Vetus was um, trying to subvert the notion of the bonus track as something that goes at the end of the CD. Mm. And so... Uh, <laughs>
1: While we're here, we yeah, are talking about it, so I, can, you know,
3: mission yeah, yeah. accomplished. But I guess who else has done that? Yeah, I don't think anybody else on earth would do that.
1: Yeah, no. It, usually, these it, would be it, tacked on the end of the album.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and of course, they don't appear on the vinyl edition, so they're unique to the CD.
1: Yeah, the next one maybe should have candidate. It's a it's a great song um, <laughs> lyrically, kind of. I mean, you can probably guess who I was thinking of when when I heard this song.
3: Well, tell me. What,
1: you know, your appeal perplexes. It's. I'm assuming it's. <laughs> you know, it's about a politician. Oh yeah, it
3: is. Yeah. It's a very uh, specific politician. Yeah. That was running for president uh, when this recording was made, and later became president.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's uh, kind of prophetic lyrically, maybe. Or it still holds up it's, today.
3: You know, it's kind of unfortunate that it's prophetic and yeah. it continues to be prophetic every few years. Yep. <laughs> there's, there's somebody running for for office who uh, is clearly undeserving of the role, mm-hmm. but people are uh, enthusiastic about that individual. Yeah, it's part of human nature, I guess, and part of the um, the political landscape in in this country. And I refer to the U.S.
1: Yeah well i i'm i'm sp- i guess you you could probably make a case that this has been re- was probably relevant every election cycle, but
3: um you probably could yeah. yes, But this was particularly egregious now, whenever there's an election, I seem to write a song about it, so it, it, it's something that bubbles up every four years yeah I'll have some you know song that's about outrage yeah. <laughs> that that comes from that experience.
1: Well, you're, you know, you're still a punk rocker, right? So you have to...
3: Yeah, at heart, I guess so.
1: Yeah. Okay, uh, Unbuttoned. Music by John Rosewall.
3: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, John's quite an accomplished uh, guitarist and bassist. He plays bass on this record. He does some of the solos. Uh, More recently, he was in Petrified Max with Vetus. He's... Probably the best musician I know, I've ever met. He's quite astonishing. Um, Unbutton is a beautiful song. I wanted it to be about romance, about sex, about love, uh, and about becoming, daring uh, oneself to someone else and being um, vulnerable in front of that person.
2: Yeah. Which
3: is not very punk rock, I guess. No, uh,
1: I love the lyrics. Very personal, <laughs> very personal lyrics. I, you know, like, I, I guess I was wondering if John had asked you to try and convey a, a specific sentiment?
3: No, he did not. It's yeah. something I just picked up in the music. I responded to what I was hearing.
1: Interesting to hear that he plays some solos. There's some really ripping guitar solos on this record.
3: Yeah, no, he's quite good. (laughs) He's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, One of my favorite songs, possibly my favorite song in the Trotsky canon that I worked on is called Natchez, and it's on Hot Pop Hello, and that's another one of his. He doesn't write that many songs for Trotsky, but when he does and I get uh, an opportunity to work on the lyrics, it always turned out to be a good thing.
1: Okay, the next one is Astronomer. This, I got it. I have to know about the lyrics to this one. I, it seems like, you know, the protagonist is trying to bond with his with his partner over astronomy or or match her interest in in astronomy to impress her or something.
3: Well, exactly. And um she's uh much more passionate about it. He doesn't quite understand it, but he he's game. Yeah. <laughs> he's trying to keep up with her, but um he's overmatched. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's about being with someone who's, you know, passionate, right, about yeah. something and you, you, you try to enter into their world but it it's difficult.
1: Well he's not completely overmatched. I mean he, he names some constellations or, or whatever, you know.
3: Right. He pointed out one constellation in the song. So. Yeah. <laughs> Good for him.
1: He's trying. He got a
3: kiss out of it. He's trying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's kind of about about being overwhelmed by romance, being overwhelmed by uh love or, or bonding. Mm-hmm. Um and it's sort of the flip side of the next song, Kabong, which is is a more violent um, interpretation of kind of the same impulse.
1: Yeah, so I'm kind of old enough to remember Kabong like the cartoon. Is that mm-hmm, is right. that the reference?
3: It is. Yeah. Um, yeah, and as I said earlier, this is the song that Vitas uh, told me was called Elkabong. He told me, you need to write lyrics for a song called El Caban. <laughs> yeah. So I knew instantly what he was talking about. He was referring to Quick Drama Craw from the Hanna-Barbera yeah. series in the early 60s. Yeah, And I thought, oh, what a great metaphor. Falling in love is by like, being hit in the head with a guitar. <laughs>
1: a specific guitar.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, he provided that. I, I know nothing about guitars. I said, us. I've got most of this work out, but I need the name of a guitar that will fit this meter, yep. and so he instantly provided that. And uh, it, I think it works really, really well.
2: Yeah, it's a
1: <laughs> like
3: a, like yeah. astronomer. You know, it's about somebody who's who's overwhelmed. Yeah, with love.
1: I love the big scream that you do at the end of this song. It's so it's so great. That
3: is actually Vetus. Oh, that is it? Is yeah, he's the screamer. <laughs> I can't do that. It would just shred me my vocal cords up.
1: Yeah. Is that Vetus on the cover actually doing the El Kabong? It is. Yeah.
3: I believe it is. Yes. It looks like him.
1: Yeah. Uh, you mentioned long, gray, baggy soul and kind of
3: being connected yeah. to. Uh... Burry Manilow. Yeah. In my interpretation. Now, we've yeah. never talked about this. With, I've never talked about this with Vitas or anything. Just listening to the record tonight. Made me think. Oh, okay, this is another one of those themes that uh, bubbles up periodically in the band's uh, canon. Sort of a um, discomfort or uh, suspicion of pop music and people who make pop music and people who make millions of dollars writing hit singles and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously the first one was about Barry Manilow, and this one uh, you'd have to ask Ditas who it's about. Okay. He told me once, and I don't really remember. But it's it's about a prominent pop musician who's made squillions of dollars, and I guess Vitas felt like it was undeserving. Mm-hmm. But you have to talk to him about that. <laughs> I don't want to misrepresent it.
1: Okay, hotel. I feel like it's about a specific hotel or something.
3: It's about a hotel in my imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also refers back to... Um, french new wave films of the 1960s uh particularly the more pretentious ones by jean Godard, and uh, maybe uh, last year marion bath uh, a lot mm-hmm. and i can spell those for you if, if you need that but uh, a lot of these uh, films from that era and antonioni films uh, as well um are about people who are uh disaffected, who are uh, rich, who are living in these beautiful, almost surreal um, environments who are unable to connect with one another. And I wanted wanted a kind of a, a narrative here that was not specific, that was really about evoking an atmosphere of discomfort and potential violence. And again, I feel like this is the hotel where the song, um, 106 degrees must take place in one of those rooms. Mm-hmm. They belong to one another. Those two, those two worlds talk to one another.
2: Did
1: you so
3: shoot? It's, it's not a very, it's not specific, but it's, it's meant to evoke an atmosphere of discomfort.
1: Did you shoot any videos for any of these songs?
3: Did we? No, I don't think we did. Um, uh, we shot videos for some tracks on baby.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep.
3: Um, yeah, but uh, that was before I was uh, in the band. I right. was just making videos for the band. Right. Um, but no, I don't think we did. It'd be fun to do that. Yeah. We'd need a huge budget. <laughs> <laughs> of course. need to fly us to Morocco or something.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Some super posh hotel, no doubt.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, or, on an evil black sea. Yeah. <laughs> We'd have to go to the location shooting, I think.
1: Yeah. Uh, Say goodnight is the I feel like maybe I'm wrong about this, but uh, Trotsky has to have a rocker to end the album.
3: Um, yeah, I think they do. Um, I think that's you know Vitas's uh, this is Vitas's uh, uh, sequencing, mm-hmm. and he felt it needed to go out on a strong, punchy uh, end. Uh, Say goodnight is something that probably refers back to cornfield, in the sense that. The protagonist is being framed by God uh, for a murder he did not commit so that's that's what that song is about
2: <laughs> okay,
1: so when this record came out, like what are your re- recollections about the reception to it?
3: Um, I think I was disappointed that a lot of people didn't didn't get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that this record is is one of my favorite Trotsky records. Um, Now, it's the first one I was involved with, obviously. But I learned so much uh, on it, how to write lyrics for someone else's music, how to write character a little bit, how to write narrative. These were all kind of new things for me, and it was very stimulating. And um, I feel like some of the themes uh, speak to one another. The album is like having a conversation between various themes that keep reappearing in different guises. And so I think the records that came after that don't have that coherence. Mm -hmm. They don't have that kind of continuity. I think it takes us until I haunted myself for that to reemerge. And that record took years to make, Mm -hmm. to write and, and create. So I had a lot of time to... of go over the the words and hone them and make them work but um of the sst uh, uh, trotsky albums this is my favorite it's the one that i think is the most coherent and i was kind of disappointed that the reviews didn't go any into any great depth about the themes or the presentation they were looking at it as a follow-up to baby which had been the best-selling album yeah um, well, how many times are
1: most reviewers listening to a record, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I think only with historical, uh, with with time, uh, can someone actually spend the, the time to go back and, and listen with more depth. Mm-hmm. But now I think it's more likely that people would, would get it. But at that moment in time, you know, college radio was in full bloom and there was a lot of content out there that was, uh, jockeying for attention and this one got a little bit lost i think it did okay certainly sst allowed us to continue, continue with three more albums yeah but um I, I i don't know how how well it went i just felt like people didn't quite understand it
1: yeah interesting i i mean I it's a great record. I, I wasn't expecting to hear you say, you know, that it was a, a standout record for you or your favorite. I, and I only say that because of the way it was written. I thought maybe, you know, like the next one where you, I, I assume you have more input into the, to the music or the, the structure of the songs would have, you know, been a more enjoyable experience for you than, than having to write to pre existing music. I think it's cool <laughs> and unique that it, w- that it was done this way and, and, probably informs the music.
3: I feel like what happened uh, after this was there was the idea that we would put out an album every year. And so the whole process was sped up and I felt like I had less time to actually uh. work on the lyrics. Though so there's some stuff that happens on ultraviolet catastrophe and um, carpet bomb the riff that I wish I had had more time to work on. They seem like first drafts to me. Um, this record seems a little bit less unfinished and more thought through.
1: That's fair. Yeah, I can see that. How, how long do you think you did work on the lyrics? Was it like months?
3: It was fast. Yeah. <laughs> it was fast. Um, so some of the songs are already written. And Vetus would send me home with a cassette or something and I'd say, here, right lyrics for these.
1: Right, right. And so
3: I would uh, return it a week or so with lyrics and then, okay, here's, here's a couple more. Go and work on these. Uh, so as they were being recorded uh, or, yeah, as they were being recorded, I would get them. Right. So um, it was it was pretty quick, but I had cleared the decks and was able to sit down and work on ideas and rework those ideas in a way that I was satisfied with I also for whatever reason the themes are very clear to me in these songs and they're very they're cleanly articulated Mm -hmm. and what happened later was okay we needed a song by tomorrow because we're gonna go and record it oh my god okay so I would sit down and and you know the first draft it was if it was good enough to sing, and that's that's the way it turned out on the record. But I feel like I'm, I'm better if I have time to ruminate on, on the words, to put them aside, uh, and then come back to them later, and rework them, Yeah, and see what works, and throw out the stuff that doesn't. So I think I've gotten better at that, um, but there was a period of time where I, I didn't feel like I had the time or opportunity. We were kind of on the clock.
1: Yeah, not to mention potentially performing them live is usually a you know, a huge asset yeah. as well. Before yeah, recording them. I mean. And I,
3: I I really like that. That works for me. That's the last couple of uh journals albums were like that. Marked them up, and we played them live for months and months, and then we went in and recorded them. And by then they were ready to go and they were thematically coherent and they were tight. Um, that's the that's
1: so the way
2: to do that, it. That's right? different experience. <laughs> yeah. That's
3: the you know, it's ideal. Yeah. If we can and and I'm I'm not I'm I'm not fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was fast back in those days.
1: Any uh, any band yeah, I've ever yeah. been in, I any album we recorded, you know, like without playing them live, all you know, I've always listened back and think, oh, geez, I wish we were to recorded that six months later.
3: <laughs> yeah, you no, know. it makes a huge difference
2: yeah.
1: because
3: then you really know the song. Yeah, if you go in too early, the song is not finished. Yeah. it's not finished until you played it out for months
2: and then
1: you get bands that like you know super famous bands that all meet up in the studio and have nothing written and write an album in the studio
3: <laughs> well if they can afford to do that in the studio then fantastic but you know that's hugely expensive yeah. we're not the rolling stones yeah i, I any luckily uh, this was viewed as a studio you know he was the time was free yeah it was in, in his backyard.
1: Yeah. Not the case with a lot of the records we've seen on SST. A lot of them were recorded in 48 hours at midnight, you know?
3: Right. Yeah, of course. Even some of the ones that Venus produced, yep. I imagine.
1: Yep. His tend to sound really good, though.
3: Yeah. Well, he knew his equipment. He, he and uh, Vic Abascal had had built that studio and done all the soldering on it and everything. So they knew the equipment backwards and forwards. I think that makes a difference.
1: Yeah. Any standout shows after this came out, like with any specific bands you can think of?
3: Um, We uh, actually toured a couple of times. I don't know if it was on this album or Ultraviolet Catastrophe. We did two U.S. tours, one in 1991 and one in 1993, Hmm. that were really out of a lot of fun and exhausting. You know, that was another reason why I was interested in joining Trotsky, not only the opportunity for personal growth and working with people um, who had a slightly different aesthetic than mine to allow me to um, write lyrics that would fit music that I would not have ordinarily written myself, but the other appeal was the fact that they were on SST, and SST bands were expected to tour, which I hadn't really done much of. Right. So it was thrilling to be able to get on the road and do, <laughs> you know, uh, 21 shows in <laughs> in 23 days or whatever yeah. it all was. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of that was a blur, uh, but we really had a good time. I don't remember any specific stand- standout shows. You know, I, I should, but I don't. I was, you know, I can't remember who which band I was in when I played particular shows mm-hmm. because Rad Waste was. Kind of happening around the same time. We were winding down, but we were still playing shows when I was in Trotsky, and then I was in Cava for a while. Yeah. So it's hard for me to disambiguate those various uh, shows. Yeah. I don't know which band I was in at any given <laughs> point. In time.
1: Uh, this photo, this parking lot photo on the back of the of the album. Do you do you know when, where that was
2: taken?
3: It was taken um, in Santa Monica, I believe. In, um, in an alley uh, and the photographer who I don't remember that is but it's on the credit I'm sure
1: I think it's Vita's um, sister
3: okay it was Felisa. Yeah. All right. yeah she was um, she was on a outdoor staircase looking down and we were uh, in the alley below mm-hmm. her you know, specifically where I don't know but it was somewhere in Santa Monica I'm pretty sure
0: Let's
1: talk a bit about what's going on now. So you mentioned Rules for Future Living?
3: Yeah, that's the most recent EP that came out um, earlier this year. January 1st, I think. Mm-hmm. Five songs for which there is one video that's on YouTube Yep. for the song RSVP that Tom Hofer and I shot. Tom's the uh, bass player on Trotsky. Yep. Um, so the idea behind this was... Um, The album, I Haunted Myself, took a really long time to conceive, to write, to record, to mix, to issue, and everyone was kind of exhausted by that process. So we decided the thing to do was, and it's also expensive to make records, you know, and then not have distribution for them. (laughs) It's very frustrating. (laughs) Um, So we decided, well, the thing to do maybe is to, create several smaller projects and issue them digitally. Mm-hmm. So a couple of years ago we put out the acrylic EP, which was five songs. And then we did this one, which is five songs. And we're working on the next one, which will probably another be another five songs. And once that's done, we can compile them and issue them physically, right. like a CD yep. or vinyl or what have you. Yep. Uh, but it gets the material out more regularly, more quickly. And keeps everyone more creatively involved and interested in the process. So that's sort of the model that we're following, and I'm doing that with one of my other bands, which is called Strike Slip, mm. um, which is uh, on Bandcamp right now. Mm. We've already issued uh, two EPs. We're working on the third one. So I don't know if this is a really useful model going forward, but it works for us because it there's it keeps things. Flowing, keeps things moving. And it gets the product, the material out there in front of the public more quickly and more regularly.
1: Tell me about that band. Break Slip? Yeah.
3: That is um, Juan Gomez from The Human Hands. Mm-hmm. And me. And right now we have a drummer named Chuck Larson, Larson who was in the Ten Foot Faces, which was a uh, punk surf band back in the 90s. Mm hmm. And the music is informed by pop and glam, and it's playful. Some of it is very, to me, it sounds like the first Eno album, Here mm-hmm. Come the Worm jets. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some playfulness to it. It's, um, I'm really having a good, good time with it, and we're trying to learn the material well enough to play live. Mm-hmm. We've just been performing it in order to record it and have not as yet played in front of an audience, but we're working on that. So there's that. And there's another, um, there's a trio with Michael Corey from Rad Waste and John Frank from Trotsky Icepick. It doesn't not have a name yet, but it's very much in the post-punk vein.
2: Uh So
3: yeah. So I'm working on those projects. 100 Flowers played a couple of weekends ago and the urinals are revving up to play again, post COVID. So I've got a lot of projects yeah. to juggle right now.
1: This post-punk project so you mentioned, goal. the, the unna- unnamed post-punk project, this this band will, will be recording at some point.
3: Um, we want to play live first. That's the next goal.
1: Yeah. Um,
3: it's possible that we'll record. We better come up with a name yeah. <laughs> Name first.
1: That's always the hard part. Eh? <laughs> you
3: know, it is. Yeah. I mean, we've been going back and forth on this for months. And yeah. the thing is, all the good names are taken, but all the bad names are taken too. Yeah. So it's yeah. like there's nothing left. <laughs> you really have to come up with something so meaningless that no one has thought of I it know. yet. <laughs> I
1: know. Yeah. Um, well, at least you can Google it now and try and find out if it's taken. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were going to call ourselves U2, and then we realized there was right. a band called U2. Darn it. <laughs> um,
1: okay, will there be any um, new recordings from 100 Flowers or the urinals?
3: There will be four urinals, definitely. We're working on new material.
1: Oh, that's exciting. Uh, I don't
3: know exactly how long that's going to take, but yeah, we're hoping to do a follow up to the last album, uh, which was next year at Marion Bad.
2: Wow. One. So,
3: um, we have about six songs ready to go right now. I think we need another half dozen.
1: Well, everyone will be super excited to hear that, including my co host Ryan. He's a total fanatic, so he'll be, he'll oh. be thrilled.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's nice to hear. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah one of the challenges is that uh, Rob, the guitar player, lives in Chicago, and uh, Kevin and I live out here in the Mojave Desert. So, um, he he's got a place out here too, but, uh, he's mostly in Chicago. So our practices don't happen on any regular basis. Right. I expect though, that we'll start playing live again in the fall. That seems like the trajectory that we're on.
1: Awesome. Right on John. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it.
3: Well, it was a pleasure, Brent. Thank you for uh, inviting me. It's, It's wonderful to talk about this. Um, Somewhat underappreciated, but I think a uh, lovely record yeah, that's that great. I feel very fondly about.
1: Yeah, it's a great record.
3: Well,
1: thank
0: you. All right, finally, finally, we got John Talley-Jones on the show. And yeah, I you mentioned how I kind of fanboyed with uh, with John at a urinals gig here in uh, my city years back. I feel like that was maybe around 2017, 2018, something like that. It would have been the first or second year of the podcast, He was just the nicest guy and totally open to talking about the the band the urinals at the time and then we talked a bit about 100 flowers Uh, he also talked to to me at the time about joining trotsky ice pick one thing that i've mentioned this along the way on uh, on the show but something that always stuck with me that john mentioned to me when i when i met met him back then is describing happy squid records as kind of a farm team for sst there's so many labels like that right but it's just it's hard to deny that happy squid was like a farm team with angst and others and so many members of uh of that circle kind of finding their way into the sst fold for a period of time just so cool to have uh john on the show and tie this all together
1: yeah, cool how, like, dialed in he was to early punk. Similar made me think of, like, some of our more recent guests, like Jim Thompson from Alternatives or Lou
0: Barlow, like, those. Or, uh, Kim Thyle. Yeah. Like, like, he <laughs> so, like, the Huns. Yeah. Kim Thyle and John Talley Jones both mentioned the Huns, right?
1: Yeah, it's weird when you're looking back now, all that stuff seems like it would, must have been so hard to find and so obscure and, like, But, I mean, all these people were just dialed right into it.
0: Yeah, so awesome.
1: A few of John's other bands that get mentioned, Rad Waste. I know we talked about uh, End Times Mixtape when it came out on Happy Squid around 2019. You can hear it on their band camp along with their 1986 EP Cooking and Nothingness. Both are awesome. I listened to them both this week again. It's been a while.
0: Yeah, they're both really, really excellent post-punk dance, uh, percussive, funky records. you got to check them out if you haven't. Um, I've actually got a spiel out of the LA Times about Rad Waste from August 10th, 1986. Jeff Spurrier, or in Canada we might call them Spurrier. But um, there's a, here's a couple of excerpts from that. It's called Rad Waste, Symbol-Minded Rockers. And of course, alluding to the fact that they had four drummers. Right. And they kind of talk about the weird situation of how they have four drummers each playing kind of a piece of a kit instead of like four people on drum kits. Right. Although the actual number of drums is just barely above that of a standard size kit, bass, floor tom, roto tom, snare, and congas, although I don't know what standard size kit has got roto toms and congas brand. <laughs> But anyways, each drummer, maybe in the '80s, maybe each each drummer concentrates on one instrument, dealing double-handed blows in syncopation with the other players. This Zen focus on the essence of the beat is strikingly reminiscent of Japanese taiko drummers, but the inspiration was much closer to home. And here's Corey from uh, from the band as well. It was inspired by marching bands, some of those South Central High School bands, says Corey. I saw them at the Street Scene Festival, and they just pounded out this wicked beat. I thought it'd be a good marriage with rock and roll. Rhythm machines and beatboxes have become such a standard now. They have some good capabilities, but I'm tired of the sound. By having a lot of different percussionists, you can get more complicated beats, things that a beatbox could do, but a single drummer couldn't. And we're doing it with real drummers, real human beings flailing around. With all this thumping going on, you might expect the music to get swallowed up in a cacophony of percussive sludge, but the guitar, bass, and vocals come through clearly. John Telly Jones and Corey write skittering guitar-led songs that evoke both 100 Flowers and the Minutemen. The frenzy of the percussion wing complements the song's punk energy perfectly thanks to the personalities of the drummers so that's from 1986 there's also actually a spiel from the rad waste band camp that you mentioned that gives a bit of a uh, a background of this rad waste combo here's what it says on the band camp and it's really getting into the origins of the band but also this end times mixtapes lp that came out in 2019 on happy squid the Four Drummered Radways presents its debut LP recorded in 1988, but never issued. It's a compelling document from the Los Angeles post-punk scene that delivered into the world Jane's Addiction, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Thelonious Monster. Those ref- those references, I think, are kind of interesting too, right? Yeah. Like, uh, you've got Jane's Addiction on your top 10 on the island, But I can also see the affinity for a band like Jane's, the Chili's, and Thelonious Monster. Oh yeah, yeah. They would have been playing shows together at like the Scream Club or whatever, for sure. Yeah. Here's a bit more history there too from the band camp. Formed from the ashes of Urinals, 100 Flowers, and the Savage Republic spinoff 17 Pygmies, which podcast pal who, Brant, is in 17 Pygmies? Jeffrey Brenman. Yeah, man. Radwaste deploys a drum corps with Kevin Barrett, Jay Jackson, Rob Malone, Debbie Spinelli. By the way, Kevin was just a hella swell of fellow when I met him at that urinal show with John Telly Jones too, right, Kevin? Right, awesome. Yeah, yeah. awesome dude. Inspired by the infectious beat and huge sound of the marching band phenomenon of South Los Angeles high schools interlocking drum patterns along with the aggressive and direct songwriting of guitarist vocalist Michael Corey and bassist vocalist John Telly jones results in an appealing and unique mix of pop, funk, punk, and soul.
1: Yeah, so along with John Telly jones and Michael Corey, Rob Malone on bass drum, Debbie Spinelli on hi-hat and toms. She played in this cool new wave band called Food and Shelter. I was checking out their 1984 album, Square Dance, on YouTube. It's arty and cool, definitely worth checking out. She was also in a later band with John Tally Jones called Vina Cava, which we'll talk about in a minute here. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Barrett on bass, of course, like you mentioned, Urinals and 100 Flowers, God in the State. He was also in an early pre-Savage Public Bruce Liker band called Project 197. And speaking of Jeff uh, Jeff Brenneman and Bruce Liker, check out that YouTube show that Jeff has independent podcast review he and his co-host greg talk about that uh project 197 single it's that's like independent project 001 yeah yeah uh, and then an, as a bonus in the episode Je- uh, jeff's wearing an sst shirt um but that's a cool chat with bruce liker that they that they have about that single and then rounding out the Radwaste lineup is jay jackson on conga's Really good experimental post punk, almost like tribal drumming at times. Mm-hmm. Must have been wild to see that live.
0: Yeah, and uh, how about the Keith Levine connection too? Hey, yeah, that's wild, man. On the on the Baden camp, it actually describes Ride Waste as being quite the hit at clubs like the uh-huh. Anti Club, and Al's Bar, um, and and Club Lingerie, and the Roxy. Really uh, supporting bands like Jesus and Mary Chain, Crime in the City Solution, Minutemen, Gene Loves Jezebel, Thelonious, Firehose, Janes. You know, you, you really get a sense of that scene. Reminds me of that uh, documentary, too, about that Sunset Strip right. scene, right? Yep. And then it mentions, at one of the LA dance clubs, Michael met ex-Clash and pill guitarist Keith Levine, who volunteered to work with the band as a live sound mixer, as well as on the follow-up to their debut LP. It was to be a full-length LP recorded at vetus's Lyceum Sound, then a kind of in-house production facility for SST bands of the era. Once Keith got the band settled into the studio, Vetus took over for the recording. And John alluded to how that kind of unfolded during the interview. Yeah. The other
1: band he mentions, Vina Cava, they were a band John had in the early 90s. They released a split single with Trotsky each doing a saints cover and a seven inch called desert mercy in 1993. I'm a little murky though on the band's history In a great interview I found with John on the board out blog, uh, from a Montreal zine called celluloid lunch. This, the guy doing the interview, Ryan Leach asks John about what he's up to now. And this is fairly recently. It was during COVID. So, um, that this interview happened. He mentions there's an entire album of demos that he wants to release, produced by David Nolte. Uh, and he says in the interview that was the period right between Rad Waste, but before Trotsky Ice Pick started to happen with SST. This He's talking about Vina Cava. Vina yep. yeah. He says Vina was another three piece David Nolte, Debbie Spinelli, and me. We only existed for a couple of years but I think the material is really strong. The closest I could find to hearing it was a a live version of the song Desert Mercy performed in 2019 by John Telly jones and Volcano Rabbits. You can find that on YouTube.
0: Mm. Yeah, I've only got the singles. I'd love an LP, man. Wow.
1: And then speaking of YouTube, make sure you check out the video that John mentions that he and Tom Hofer made uh, for the new Trotsky song, RSVP. It's a great pandemic era commentary track. Oh, yeah. uh, With a super cool video, too. His band that he mentions, Strike Slip, which is spelled as one word, they have two EPs up on Bandcamp titled One and Two. That's John on vocals and bass, Daniel Johnson on drums, and Juan Gomez of Human Hands and the Romans on guitar and vocals. I didn't
0: know about it, did you? I did not, know, yeah. but I'm, I am know you went on a, a Romans deep dive a while back. Yeah, it's really killer. Garagey production, which
1: I like. Great songs. It's not that dissimilar to some of the Trotsky material. It's good. And then he mentions this new trio with John Frank and Michael Corey that he describes as like, post-punk, so I'm looking forward to that. He also had or has this project Unilab, which I was unaware of, but... He mentions them also in that Ryan Leach interview. There's a Bandcamp for them as well. Four EPs circa 2018 to 2022. So maybe still going, I'm not sure. Uh, it's he and this guy John Glagovac. Sorry, John, if I'm mispronouncing that. Strictly a recording project, it says on the Bandcamp. They describe it as electro-acoustic music informed by pop, rap, music concrete, Progressive rock, punk rock, Frank Zappa, Karl Heinz Stockhausen, and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Ish. <laughs> so lots to dive into with John Telly Jones. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Ryan, let's talk about this record. History Lesson, Part Two. So it was recorded at Lyceum Sound Recorders, Winter 88 89, engineered and produced by John Rosewall and Vetus. It was released in July of '89 on CD, LP, cassette. The CD has three extra tracks, similar to "Baby," which had two extra tracks. We'll get into that when we talk about the record.
0: Yeah, much to my chagrin, I was—I uh, didn't really actually realize that until I started prepping. I've been listening to El Cabong with three less tracks all yeah. this time, so I—I had to remedy that this week. Although my CD hasn't arrived yet. <laughs> Hey, and Vetus was also able to send us a spiel on the sessions and kind of how this all came together. You want to hear some of that? Yeah. All right. So just some uh, a sampling. Vetus was very generous in giving us like so much excellent, excellent detail here. So here's Vetus. Jason Kahn had jumped in as we prepared music for Richard Casey's Hellbent flick and the Lyceum studio at Walgrove and Rose in Mar Vista was sounding live and natural. Recording that first SST LP was effortless. Yeah, we talked about that movie on the baby episode. Yeah, hell-bent. The band landed a series of great bills. We were playing better and louder than ever when John Telly Jones agreed to take over on lead vocals. That was the real quantum leap for us both live, and we hoped it would be the same in the studio. Greg Ginn was most supportive, and we began work on a new album initially titled Beethoven Market named after the corner store that supplied our beer and (laughs) Pop-Tarts. Then he mentions how they ran into a few snags. One was Kel developed tinnitus, kind of like Roger Miller, who we had on the show here a few episodes ago. Kel had to end up wearing like those, uh, you know, shooting range cans. And you can see pictures of that in the liners. And, And on a lot of the YouTube videos you can find from this era. Yeah, yeah. So they had like major half stacks, and they were totally like just dialed all the way up. So they switched back to small combo amps, as Vitas describes it, um, because Kel was forced to wear this hearing protection. And then Vitas also mentions that shortly after John Talley Jones took over as frontman, Jason announced Jason Kahn. That is announced he would be touring Europe with Universal Congress of, and that when he got back, he wanted to pursue his own experimental and electronic music. I don't think he did come back. Yeah. <laughs> He's still over there. Yeah. And then uh, Vitas goes on, Universal Congress of, Cruel Frederick and Trotsky Icepick, and probably a few others, therefore, lost their influential and most talented drummer. Um at this point they had tracked several songs for the new album but everything was in an uneasy state of flux if not for our amazing new frontman John I would have thrown in the towel that's Vetus which is uh that would have been a real shame I'm really glad that they saw the the potential and pulled together to get this uh, record together yeah. Then Vetus goes in this amazing spiel about how they had to get different recording equipment at the studio They had some uh, tape machine troubles, but ultimately they figured out how to make some great recordings with John fronting the the band and then with Hunter Crowley behind the kit. El Elkabong and Unbutton, these are some songs were all tracked on this uh, Studer A80 with outboard signal chain wherever possible and sounding infinitely better than the earlier Beethoven market tracks. But here's the thing for me. I think it all hangs together does, yeah. when you listen to the record. I, I don't hear what Vetus is hearing, but. Me I, either. Uh, fair How, I, fair it's, enough, it's, you know. It's it's hard to disagree with Vetus though, yeah. because he's got like such a great ear. All of his records sound great. And you know, you're your own worst critic. For sure. And, and uh, let's let Vetus be his own worst critic. Yeah. No no issue there. Yeah. So similar to the Alternatives
1: uh, record we did two weeks ago, or whatever. Uh, this is not available digitally. This album, some of it's on YouTube, some of it isn't. So if you don't own this record, unless you're more capable than I am of of searching YouTube, uh, you won't get to hear some of these songs. Uh, hopefully, they'll get it up on their Bandcamp.
0: They're doing the updating mastering treat like treatment for all their records I hope and get them up on Bandcamp well, eventually yeah yeah I feel like baby
1: was up recently but I I checked this week and it's I don't think it's up anymore so I'm not sure what's what's going on there mm. so track 1 side 1 conveniences of life and you can find this song on YouTube yeah music by Vetus lyrics by Vetus and
0: John Telly Jones yeah great song I love the lyrics by Vetus and John as you mentioned in the interview still kind of relevant these days although the reference to microfiche <laughs> is is just excellent yeah. just excellent but i gotta tell you like right off the hop on this record i know what you're mar- gonna say <laughs> the, the bass playing know, is yeah. is just insane I, know I, lo- it is. Yeah. I, I love it man just yeah. amazing bass playing and when we get to some reviews later on you'll hear some reviewers reference fire hose now it's it's not the same as Mike Watt playing bass, but I can see how the untrained ear would say some of the bass playing on this record is Firehose-esque, and it's killer. Yeah, I had the same thing. John Rosewell's bass
1: playing is really stands out. This song's about, I guess, technology making life more convenient. Some of the references are obviously dated, like how could they not be? Um, laser disc, radar dish, sense around stereo. Is
0: that dated? I don't know. I don't know. Don't you have any laser discs? No. <laughs> I have I have the laser disc from Goo. <laughs> yeah, I know you've showed me. Yeah, that's the, cool. The Sonic Youth
1: Goo yeah. laser disc, the video disc. Some subtle but effective organ from Vetus. It's cool when it shifts into the narrative midsection where the na- narrator is just going to go out in a hail of bo- bullets. Yeah. Like that, sounds, I, like that sounds like the
0: plan anyways. Yeah, I wrote down cool breakdown. but And right off the hop too, not just the great bass playing, but... We, and we already mentioned this, but yet again, the production from Vetus is just... Always. oh, yeah. Untouchable. Not dated at all. Just so tasteful. You can hear everything. Awesome.
1: Track two, The Light Pours Out of Me. And this one has Jason Kahn on drums. A cover of a magazine song credited to Howard DeVoto, John McGiock, and Pete Shelley. This is one of magazine's earliest songs. Pete Shelley was never in magazine, but Howard DeVoto was in The Buzzcocks with Pete. Yeah. Uh, He left in 1977 following their first EP, Spiral Scratch, to form magazine. Their version is on their debut album, 1978's Real Life, generally considered one of the first post-punk albums, total classic. Yep. It's a great track, a a perfect cover for Trotsky in my opinion. Mm Mm-hmm. John says in the interview that he thinks he overperforms it, but I disagree. I I think he's probably referring to, he's kind of making his voice a little gruff or something when he sings some of the lines, but I think it's great. Um, I really like the guitar interplay in this version, and Vitas's piano part is, is cool too.
0: Yeah, I wrote on here, Sweet Piana. On this one. There's some sweet <laughs> piana. You know what, Brent? Have you had a chance to read that Barry Adamson book yet?
1: No. And I haven't read the book about John McGiuch either, which is called The The Light Pours Out of Me.
0: Yeah. I read Barry's book uh, about a month and a half ago or whatever. Wow. What a ride, man, for yeah. that guy. Just an amazing story. Made me really do a deep dive into magazine because I'm def definitely like more of a Buzzcocks fan, um, but got way back into magazine great great records there the thing that struck me about this song though and i don't know if it's you know the trotsky treatment it kind of sounds like you know uh that jefferson airplane song it kind of has that kind of feel to it and then the super fuzz guitar line in this track it had a total 60s psych feel to it yeah, a lot of that, this does yeah yeah 60s psych feel on a magazine cover yeah
1: yeah a lot of this record has that that feel to it. This song's up on YouTube as well for people that want to hear it. The next track is Yolanda Won't You Give Me a Job Music by Kale Lyrics by Vetus and it's Vetus on lead vocals Jason Mm -hmm. Kahn on drums. I love John Talley Jones's voice and it was perfect for Trotsky but it's great to still have a few with Vetus on vocals for me because I love his voice too. Great big guitar chords in this one it kind of has a bit of a new wave feel when it goes into the who gives a fuck anyway
0: part mhm
1: john rosewall with a really rad melodic solo
0: yeah he plays guitar on this track guitar yep. solo
1: yep there's some awesome live footage from al's bar up on the wharf rat youtube and it says in the comments like it's you know the, that's the band's youtube page or whatever so whoever's posting posting that from the band's wrote the song itself is about a job interview gone hopelessly awry. Hmm. And that's cool to watch too because uh, John Tally jones sings it live instead of Vetus. And there's a studio version of this also on YouTube.
0: Yeah, great track. John's bass is the stand-up for me again. I'll say that a few more times.
1: Yeah. The next one's Cornfield. Music by Vetus, lyrics John Tally jones You know, with the, with the birds chirping and the kind of wood blocks and the toms... frogs. Yeah. You kind of don't know where this song's going. You half expect to hear a, like a monkey or something and it and like a jungle (laughs) type of vibe, like the cramps or something. But then it goes into this, a little bit of a voodoo, uh, but melodic type of track. Halfway through it picks up double time, maybe not double time, but Hunter starts playing a straight beat on the drums instead of like he comes off the toms. Super cryptic lyrics, as John mentions, it's based on a Twilight Zone episode. Like lyrics, like there's a movement out in the cornfield. The sky is churning with an angry red light. I listened to this album a ton this week, and every time this song came on, I was just grooving to it so hard.
0: Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Did you pick up all of the uh, the killer wiggle stick action in this song too? Oh yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah. Some, there's some whammy bar action on this record. Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, This song's up on YouTube. The next one's 106 Degrees, music by Kale, lyrics by John Tally jones Jason Kahn on drums. John says in the interview, it's a dreamy narcotic hallucination due to a fever or something along those lines. The way they doubled the spoken vocal in this increases that effect, but again, has that, like you said, a 60s psychedelic vibe
0: almost. Yeah, yeah. It's a, It's probably the eeriest atmospheric song on side one anyways. Yeah. Um, some cool creepy
1: keys, those big snare cracks with the reverb give it a cool effect. I can't pick this one f- for consideration for the ballot result just because it's, I don't know, I just can't. But uh, I really like it. It's one of my favorite songs on here. Uh, on YouTube, someone made a cool video for it so you can, you can hear it and, and watch this video that someone made. Also, I found a cool cover version on YouTube by a band called the Marshmallow Bunnies, and they do like a gothy version of it.
0: Yeah, this could really uh, take a, a
1: goth treatment, this song. Yeah. And now we get into the three CD-only tracks. Mm-hmm. We've got This Car Is Not Blue, which is music and lyrics by Vetus. Sample... Uh, From the Witches of Eastwick, which I've never seen, that opens the track is super amazing. Take a deep breath, let it all out. Now we're going to pick up our instruments, and when I count to four, we're going to play the shit out of this thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I could see, had you and I known of that, putting it on one of our band's old old records, hey? Yeah, for sure.
1: Uh, More big guitars on this, some flanger even no studio version of this on youtube but a live version from the from that al's bar gig with again with john on on vocals yeah it ends on kind of a discordant note and then it goes straight into that hounds of baskerville sample and the about that boot of mine track yeah sound collage yep. and john talks in the interview about vetus's desire to you know subvert the notion of bonus tracks by putting them in the middle of the album
0: Yeah. Which is awesome. (laughs) It is awesome. Here's what Vita said about the extra tracks from this session and this one in particular. Unlike our baby recordings, El Cabong sessions yielded no worthwhile outtakes. Rosewall and I just threw everything onto SST CD version, including a drum track gifted by Jason Kahn during his last day in the studio with us. See if you can write a pop song to this, he dared us. The result... About That of mine featured dialogue from the Basil Rathbone version of Hound of the Baskerville and Jason Kahn singing Happy Birthday from a Universal Congress session. Kel and I were in stitches. Most anyone else would have done without this exercise or the 18 minutes of a stuck phonograph needle at the end of our CD version. Yeah, the CD version has a the sound of a record skipping for like 18 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Here's Vetus again. The funny thing about the SST CD sequence, our technical challenges come first, throwaways, laminate sides one and two together, and it all ends with two effortless tunes demonstrating our new direction perfectly. Yeah,
1: remember Universal Congress of did the song Happy Birthday on the This Is Mecalotics album, which Mm -hmm. Vetus recorded, so that makes sense that he had that, that track kicking around. Conceptual continuity. Yep. Unfortunately, this song's not up on YouTube. Uh, The next song, the third of the and final bonus track, I guess, is Candidate. Music by Kale, lyrics, John Telly Jones. Hard not to think of Trump (laughs) when you hear this, or a lot of politicians, but him specifically. Oh, what lies you tell. What truth do you believe in? Your appeal perplexes. Um, You've made a strategy out of anarchy of reason. I hear the things you say. It's a sickness, not a richness. I see that where you walk, there's chaos and attrition. There's a great video of them performing this. Uh, yeah. On the that Warfret YouTube page, uh, it's a lyric video too. That's mm-hmm. somebody made, so you can you can read the lyrics as you watch it. John's singing in it is like an '80s garage rock vocalist on that YouTube video. Yeah, he yeah. He sings it way different. It's it's cool though. Uh, And Kale's wearing his big, big muffs in the video too. No studio version on YouTube, unfortunately, because this is a good song. Agreed. Okay. And then we're flipping the record over, if you're listening to it on vinyl, and we've got the start of the B-side, Unbuttoned. Music, John Rosewall. Lyrics, John Telly Jones. I love this song. John's Mm -hmm. vocal is outstanding. He calls this a song about bearing your soul to someone. The lyrics are just great. He's a an amazing lyricist. Like we've talked on the show or I have about how I don't usually focused on focus so much on lyrics. So it was cool to have John on to talk about the lyrics, you know, cause that was it's unique in that sense that that was his primary contribution to this record. John Roswell on lead guitar Fetus's organ is super great. This is just spectacular songwriting.
0: Yeah. For me, it it's a standout for sure elements of it. Were kind of Brando's esque for me too. Kind of the chord changes, the minor chords, very Brando's for me. But they put their own spin on it, and of course the lyrics and uh, vocals make it stand apart. Yeah, and the organ
1: is cool too. There's yeah. a there is a studio version of this up on YouTube.
0: This would have had to have been you know the SST promo single if they were going to have one.
1: I think it would have been the next one, Astronomer. That's the one that most of the reviewers seem to pick out anyways, is like the single. And it's definitely one of my favorites as well. Me too, it's good. Yeah. Music by Kale, lyrics by John Talley Jones. It's a great driving rocker with awesome lyrics about, as John says, being overwhelmed by love. He kind of referenced in the the lyrics that he can't compete with her, uh, her love of astronomy, so he's trying to share her passion for it. He's taking choruses. He's complaining about the telescope being too heavy. Uh, The line about one night I pointed out Triangulum, she gave me a kiss and I really saw stars. I just love that. Um, Amazing. Amazing, right? Yeah. Studio version is up on YouTube and a killer more recent live version at a Rhino Records in-store from just a few years ago. The next one's El Cabong, the title track, music by Kale and Vetus, Lyrics by John Talley Jones. So, for those who don't know the reference, Quick draw, McDraw was a Hanna-Barbera cartoon character, a horse who was an old West sheriff, and his vigilante alter ego was this masked Al Kabong, kind of a spoof on Zorro, I guess. He'd yeah. swoop down on a rope and smash villains over the head with an acoustic guitar and shout, Kabong. <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to walk home from school for lunch, like on my lunch hour. And I would watch reruns of it with the Flintstones over the lunch hour, sometimes Mr. Magoo, sometimes Captain Caveman.
0: Yeah, Hanna Barbera was twelve to one in uh in our province back then. Oh yeah.
1: Uh in the Trotsky version, they they use a sixty three strat instead of an acoustic guitar. Again, John's vocal is really great. He kind of does the the rockabilly hiccup thing almost that Yep in this song, which I I just love. He does a bit of the growl like he did in that live version of candidate too. Yeah. His lyrics are just phenomenal. There are mysteries like the birds and the bees just love that part. Like he really knocked it out of the park, writing lyrics to fit these songs. It's super impressive. Like you, you can probably hear in the interview, I was really intrigued by the process Mm -hmm. and uh, I still am. I do I've, I've, it seems like it would be really hard to do what he did. I think it would be, for sure. But not for John Talley Jones or HR. Yeah. Well, especially to do it this this successfully as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Vetus's howl before the final verse is just awesome. Some uh, great organ great again. Yeah. Like Nagasaki after the bomb. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the YouTube ver- uh, the studio version's up on YouTube and a 1990 Club Lingerie with my- with future bassist Mike Patton of Middle Class in that version. The next track is Long Gray Baggy Soul written solely by Vetus and it's him on vocals. Tom Watson of Slovenly on mock MTV guitar, it says in the liners. Yeah. I'm assuming they're referring to the, the guitar solo. Mm-hmm. Mark Knoppler guitar solo it's pretty funky some Mm -hmm. of the lyrics like face crumpled like a scrotum and there's fuzzy stuff (laughs) on top eyes so dazed and frightened as he begs to let them stop the next one is hotel written by kale the music lyrics by john jason con on drums on that on that one john says he intended the lyrics to evoke an atmosphere of discomfort You kind of have to listen closely to the lyrics to get that, because it's a pretty upbeat song musically. Some whammy bar action on this one. Not on YouTube, unfortunately.
0: Great bass playing again. have to mention that one more time, at least. Killer lines, killer melodies. Just totally sets it off.
1: And then we end the album with Say Goodnight, music by Vetus, lyrics John Telly jones Jason on drums, John Rosewall on the solos, it's just a short two-minute rocker to close out the album. John says, in the interview, the protagonist is being framed by God for a murder he didn't commit. The lyrics say things like, "I'm no fall guy. You'd you better see no deity can get the goods on me." Uh, the most upbeat track for sure. Yeah, and then it just kind of ends abruptly, and the CD has, you know, 17, 18 minutes of of a, of a record skipping. John Talley Jones calls this his favorite of the SST releases. Hmm. Thankfully, we've still got um, a few. We get to decide for ourselves. We've got four more Trotsky episodes to come. Yeah. <laughs> but so far, I'd say this is my favorite of the three that we've heard. Really? I think so.
0: Hmm. It is excellent.
1: Here's a here's a short little review I found, Ryan, and I don't know who who this is from. I couldn't find a credit for it, but it says, Trotsky Icepick are a folk rockin' version of Talking Heads. As with most SST releases, only broad-minded consenting adults fami- <laughs> familiar with naked, spicy, quirky, and charged rock and roll need invest.
0: I got a few uh, reviews here myself. You want me to hit you with those? Yep. All right. Not sure where this is from. It's called The Hard Report, New Alternative. It almost looks like a, like a radio magazine. I'll, I'll tell you why in a sec here. But here's uh, just an excerpt from this one's review. Trotsky Ice Pick, Elkabong. Elkabong has the same credibility of a Volcano Sun's Bright Orange Years album, but the bands are miles apart in style. This is an organic outfit that can make you reach boiling point without ever pulling a power chord while conjuring up a dreamy, dense field of guitar melodies with a distant echo of percussion. One standout track is a cover tune usually ignored by this pen pusher, and there's no credit to the writer of this either. Oddly enough, but the reinterpretation of Devoto's The Light Pours Out of Me is incredibly good, as is the ringing, flamboyant organ in the title track and the gripping beat of hotel astronomer is this album's mass appeal triumph and a gritty tribute to the late seventies wave and the vibrant chords and the bird song mix of cornfield helps the disturbing theme of this song go down a lot easier. How do you get relief from a nebulous sea of garage rock El Cabong? <laughs> it's always
1: interesting to hear the bands that they got compared to, you know,
0: yeah. Check this out, though, just to give you a sense of why I think this is from a uh, like a, rec- a radio station, um, like circular or something like that. Hard to tell. But it's talking about bands are most added and most requested. So here's what El Cabong was up against. Red Hot Chili Peppers. That would have been Mother's Milk. Ocean, uh, this is most added. Red Hot Chili Peppers, Ocean Blue, dyed pretty. Yusu and endure and the stone roses and most requested B 52s. That's probably like love shack. The uh, the pixies, the cure it's probably uh Friday. I'm in love pop will eat itself and Mary's Danish mm. wild man. Here's another review from the album network. 1989, August. This is by Andy Miller at W U O G again, another radio station. Trotsky Ice Pick. Here's a proposal. How about paying as much attention to Trotsky icepick as, say, fire hose? We'll play it safe and stick within the label, SST, that is. No, they're not the same style, but these Trotskys write as prolifically as the aforementioned, rendering listeners helpless to the sound in much the same fashion, led by Vitas Matare, this five-piece outfit from SoCal, which now includes new lead singer John Telly Jones, consistently unleashes pop gems one after the other, and this release is no different. In the fine tradition of quick-draw McGraw, Cabong will knock you over your head with the conveniences of life, as well as the drum-banging astronomer, rife with humor and life. And then here's from the CMJ New Music Report, July of 89. For their third LP, the Trotskyites have chiseled the corkscrew melodies. And I think they're saying the third because they don't know about the Danny and the Doorknobs one. Right, right. (laughs) Right. For their fourth LP, the Trotskyites have chiseled their corkscrew melodies and new wave power pop hybridization that made Baby a way paver funneling the side trips into a honey-pure elixir that slides straight down the craw. Yeesh. <laughs> the, the best cuts on the record are undeniably and unrelentingly jolly, bright colours, keyboards and SoCal sun-infusing the production, all designed to be heard with the top down and the sunscreen on. Although not actually similar in sound, this LP is closest to on the SST label to firehose, straightening out the kinks while not covering their roots on the turf of the underground. With tendrils in the playlist of today's average college idealist and in a past entwined with the Minutemen and 100 Flowers. At a few unhappy points, vocalist John Telly Jones uses quirk for quirk's sake, but these are rare instances. Otherwise, the Trotskys don't monkey around much with their bright pop, the arrangements keeping the instruments unmuddled and distinct. With El Cabong, the hyphens are gone from these LA veterans sound and process of assimilation rather than purge, leaving the humor and wit as undiluted as ever. Yeah, I don't know. If I was going to compare them to an SST band, it would probably be The Last, not Firehose. Mm Mm-hmm. Or maybe Slovenly or maybe Angst. Yeah. Maybe not fire hose, but I think on this record, the bass playing and it's 1989 and, you know, fire hose are probably getting a lot of press around this time. And they're probably packaged in with some press kits that are being sent out. I can see why. Yeah.
1: That last review you read sounded like Pedro speak. A they're little a, bit. Hey? They're a way paver.
0: Way paver. <laughs> yeah.
1: The artwork, Ryan, this is what Vitas told me about the artwork and it's obvious when you when you hear this when you when you look at the record. Mhm. The cover art was a rip on Lee Morgan's Sidewinder LP. The Don Brown designed version of the cover which was a, I think the original version was quite literal and he included the original when he when he, he sent me a the, the original cover image when he told me all this so we'll post that this week.
0: Yeah, interesting that SST kind of uh aped Four, one of its album covers a very classic jazz LP for a second time, yeah. just like Universal Congress of. Yeah. yeah, It's when you see it, it's definitely a play
1: on that. It even has the musicians' names written out, like, with, like Sidewinder does. With the arrows? Yeah, Vetus goes on, he says, My sister Felice used pixelated duotone images from the final explosion sequence of Antonioni's Zabriskie Point which is an early 70s film to provide the greenish background in one of the images there appears to be a large speaker frame from an entertainment system that is tossed in the air and you can see that when you look for it he also included a screen cap from the movie to show me what he he means Um, that's what she used for kind of that green background part and of course, that's Vitas on the cover
0: doing the Kabong. Doing the Alcabon, yeah. And then on the back, as you mentioned, it's got arrows pointing to each of the members with their names. It's got Hunter Crowley in, with some sort of top hat yep. going on. Maybe it's a fedora. Oh, John, it's a top hat. It's a top okay. Um John it looks like he's begging for forgiveness with some sweet like mirror shades on maybe a scarf i think there's a, a tally jones scarf going on there um, kel i mean that the way that kel looks there i feel like he should be a member of naked regan there it looks like he's got some boots and some jeans rolled up look and with like a bit of a flat top hairdo like naked Raygun-esque almost uh Vetus has got just like a shit eating grin going on there looking deadly and then uh John um just staring up looks like he might be flying the flannel with a uh, a jean jacket killer he's rocking a stash or well a beard i think yeah. he's got a, a full beard going on there but we'll go with rocking the stash sure <laughs> that's going to be rocking the stash is going to be one of my top 10 quotes for Brandt when we get to episode 300, I'm, I'm calling it right now. And then, um, my copy of El Cabong, it was actually like a sealed cutout that I got years ago. So I've got the insert with some killer, killer photos in here. Um, and you can see Kel, he's got the, uh, you know, the, the firing range muffs on there. Um, I think that that uh, that would be Vetus with uh, the Strat, I think. Hard to tell what shirt he's wearing there, but it almost looks like it could be Paisley. A 63 Strat, maybe? Maybe. Yeah, right. Good call. Good call. Uh, We've got Hunter behind the kit there. Almost looks like he's got like a Hunter hunting hat on or something like that. Don't know. Um, John on the flip. He's rocking the stash as part of the beard. <laughs> John is just uh, belting it out, um, probably like it looks like you know a very uh, high quality sure microphone there, and then a sweet, awesome like uh, staircase band pick, which looks like probably taken because uh, you've got uh, Hunter with the top hat on in this picture too. Looks like it was probably done at the same time. You can tell they've kind of got the same outfit on so same photo session as this parking lot picture on the back as this uh, staircase picture on the back here yeah i think they use that for a sst promo photo yeah likely i've got some dead wax nice you want it yeah do i ever all right i think it's the same on both sides though unfortunately so for side one it says use no hooks and then side two Use No Hooks. Well, this album's got a lot of hooks. Yeah. Maybe it's a reference to a Hookie from uh, Joy Division. Maybe. Or New Order. Probably not. Probably not. Ballot Result? Yeah, man. Ballot Result. Wow. Great record.
1: My favorites were Cornfield, 106 mm. Degrees this car is not blue unbuttoned astronomer and the title track
0: unbuttoned is probably my favorite track
1: i would say but you pick i kind of want to do cornfield really yeah
0: yeah it's it's a good track i'd go with it
1: okay yeah i hope people get to hear this album man it's really good
0: i hope so too i mean i like as i mentioned i had to go and find a cd version and i i'm getting one shipped to my door for less than 20 bucks so uh it's definitely worth the investment. Yeah.
1: Hey, thanks to Vitas for sending some, some stuff in. And thanks to John Talley-Jones for,
0: for being on our show. Can't wait to get into more Trotsky on upcoming episodes.
1: Yeah. So uh, we may or may not have an episode next week, Ryan. We might be taking another two yeah. weeks off. Life's Oops. pretty crazy right now. And we may or may not have a guest. But if and when we do get to, well, we will get to it. When we do, what is our next episode, Ryan?
0: (laughs) With that wind up, uh, our next episode is going to be SST 247. Stone by stone, I pass for human. Awesome. Can't wait. Yeah. More Chris D.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content.